Okay there, saints. Open up your Bibles, Old Testament, book of Exodus, chapter 1. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we are so, so grateful that you have been walking us through your word. Showing us your heart. Showing us our heart. Showing us, Lord, the foundations that you have set up in your word that we can anchor in biblical truths. Truths not that men would speak, not that men would want us to believe, but, but truths, Lord, that you, through your word, would weave so perfectly and anchor us into who you are and what you've done. And that we want that to continue, Lord, through this book of Exodus. So we're asking, Lord, again, for an outpouring of your spirit, that you would meet and minister to us. As always, Lord, give us ears to hear what your spirit would speak to us, your church. Mm -hmm. Knit us to you. Yes. And, and through that, Lord, knit us to one another in yes. unity and fellowship. Mm -hmm. So we give you this time it's to your glory, Lord. To your glory alone, we, we do this. We ask that you would bless this time. Bless your word. Bless our understanding of it. We ask in Jesus' name and all the saints of God said, Amen. Amen. <laughs> all right, book of... Exodus chapter 1. It opens up just simply. Now, these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man and his household came with Jacob. So as it comes up, it just simply opens up and these are the names. Well, you can't tell if you have, um, I don't know if the old King James has it. I forgot to look it up. Um, my Bible just simply says, now these are the names. In the original Hebrew, the, the first word should be and. And these are the names. So what's interesting is this, that when you take a look at both Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first word is and. And these are the names. And the next thing. So... What happens is that these five books of the Torah are all a continuation. It's not like okay, it just ends in Genesis. Now, we ended in Genesis, so we can do Matthew, but um, what is happening is the Spirit continues the dialoguing through Moses um, as, as he pens these books, and they're just continuations. And so within the Hebrew... The, the name of this book is, now these are the names. They're, they're not, you know, trying to wow you with, let's call it Exodus. No, that, that wasn't the point. They just said, these, this is, now these are the names is the first words here. Let's just call it, these are the names. And so, um, but the Exodus deals with the, the journeying of the nation of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Now, if you want a, a focal point on really what's going to be happening as we go through this book, let me give you one verse to jot down. In Exodus chapter 15, in verse 13, it makes this statement, you, in your mercy, have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. So what we're seeing here is, is God saying, you know, you through your mercy, you've led us forth. It's not because of we deserved it. It's not because we earned it. Through everything that's going on, all this is your mercy. You're leading forth the people whom you have redeemed. What we're going to see here is the, the book of Exodus is just really above all things. It's a book that really deals with the foundation of redemption. As Genesis brought out beginnings and God just starting, I'm going to be bringing the Messiah through this line of people that I've chosen to, to say these are the ones that are going to be the forefathers of a nation that through this nation I will bring the Messiah. Now we see here that this nation, as we are going to be looking at it, the nation has to be redeemed, and God is going to redeem this nation. If you want an outline for the book, let me kind of give you a basis of what we're going to be looking at. In the first 
six chapters, we're going to see how there is a need for redemption. The first six chapters, there's a need for redemption. We're going to see the oppression of the children of Israel. We're going to see what that is. And then once we get into chapter 7 through 11, we're going to note the power of the Redeemer. As, as Moses and Aaron comes as those witnesses with the rod, we're going to see the power of the Redeemer as we will go through the, the plagues. We'll go through the blood and the frogs and the lice and the flies and the diseases and the boils and the hail and the locusts, the darkness, and of course the last one where it's death. And so we're going to see in, in a sense that, that power of the redemption. And then when we get in chapter 12, all the way through um, chapter 18, we're going to be looking at really what the character of redemption is. And that's as we look at the Passover lamb, as we begin to look at just those, those areas where God begins to bring the children of Israel through the wilderness. But we're going to be looking at basically what the character of redemption looks like as Moses tends us out. And then we're going to be looking at, once we get into verses, chapters 19 through 24, we're going to be looking at the, the response of the redeemed. In other words, God is going to dictate, here's a direction, here's my, my heart, here's my law. What is going to be your response to um, me redeeming you? Are you going to walk in obedience? Are you not? And then as we conclude it, once we get to the chapters 25 through 40, we're going to see how God makes a provision for the failures of the redeemed. And this is where that work through the tabernacle and the sacrifices begin. So as we, we look to this, one of the things that you're going to be recognizing is as we come into this point of redemption, a pinnacle that we will see as we get into it is going to be in chapter 12. Now, before you go to chapter 12, I want you to jot this down because in the book of Genesis, in chapter 22, when Abraham was about to take his son, his only son, Isaac, whom he loved, and as he was going to take him to a mountain in which God would show him, eventually what happens is that, that Isaac speaks to him in verse 7. He says, um, look, we have the, the wood, um, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And what's interesting is in verse 8, the statement is made by Abraham. And Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself the lamb for the burnt offering. Um, so the two of them went together. And of course, there was a substitute. There was a ram that was there. But it was, and we noted how in the Hebrew it wasn't God will provide for himself a lamb, but God would provide himself the lamb. He would become this lamb. And that was a promise that initiated there in the book of Genesis as we went through the 22nd chapter. But when we come to Exodus and we come to the 12th chapter, all of a sudden we're going to see that there's this not a promise of a lamb, but we're going to see here there's a sacrifice of the Lamb. In Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 3, I want to read down through verse 8. It said, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons according to each man's need you shall make your count for the lamb your lamb shall be without blemish a male of the first year you may take it from the sheep or from the goats now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month and then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel and note what he says here will kill it at twilight and they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lentil of the house where they eat it. And there they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in the fire with unleavened bread, with bitter herbs, they shall eat it. 
So what we see is there's a promise of a lamb that comes in Genesis. There's the sacrifice of the lamb that comes now in Exodus. One of the things that we're also <laughs> going to be seeing here, and this is why we, in a sense, partially made that jump from Genesis to Matthew to Exodus. When we were going through Matthew, we had made a note of what was coming of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And we'd spent some time dealing with what was known as the tribulational period. Once you have that under your belt and you're sort of grounded with the events that will happen with the tribulational period, when you come to the book of Exodus... What we begin to see this, Exodus is going to foreshadow that tribulational period. And as you, you know, recognize that there's going to be this wicked leader that is going to be risen up. And he's going to hate Israel. And he's going to seek to destroy Israel. So we understand Antichrist, we understand Pharaoh. So that same type of thing as it comes through. So as the Antichrist wants to destroy Israel as a nation, so here will the, the Pharaoh. And what's unique is this, that in the book of Exodus, that God is going to use the plagues, the ten plagues, to convince the leader of Egypt, you have no real authority here. God is going to use plagues on a world scale um, in much the same way, and we went through those areas of the different plagues that would be happening. And so we see here that what Exodus does is it begins to foreshadow the tribulational period. You have this near sense that's happening here in Exodus, but it's going to foreshadow the future tribulational period that's there. So you have the world leader who's seeking to destroy the nation Israel. You have these plagues that are not just local but worldwide as God begins to protect Israel. In the book of um, Revelation, we see that God brings the nation Israel into the wilderness, and there he protects them for three and a half years. We're going to see that here he brings Israel into the wilderness, and of course the protection is a little bit longer but because of their rebellion. But we see that here they, they are there in the wilderness. We see there in the book of Revelation that there are two witnesses that come out. And they are the ones who are seeking to um, tell people of what is going on with God. And, and what God is saying is going to be going on here. We do have a sense as the near sense of the fulfillment. The two witnesses that happen in Exodus. If you notice that it's not normally just <laughs> Moses alone. But it's Moses and his brother Aaron. You have the two witnesses that are here in Exodus. And then we see, of course, God's great deliverance um, here in Exodus. And we we'll also see God's great deliverance that is going to be there in the book of Revelation. And so, but along with that deliverance, God does what? He brings the deliverer. Here, of course, it's Moses as the deliverer in you know, the tribulational period, it's going to be Jesus as the great deliverer. And so that God is going to um, tell Israel, who's in the wilderness, God's going to bring you back to the promised land, which is going to be Jerusalem and, and Israel. And he does the same thing here when they're in Egypt. God's going to bring you to the promised land, which of course is going to be Israel and eventually through to Jerusalem. And so... You're going to see here that there's many, many types of shadows that we'll see as we go through the book of Exodus that are types and shadows and the near sense of fulfillments to what will be future fulfillments there in the book of Revelation. So I do want you to see how we discuss that in Matthew. And there are many, many types that we're going to see here as we go through the book of Exodus. And lastly, there's going to be just... Um, oh, just a lot of areas in here where we're going to see that this is a type of Christ and a type of Christ and a type of Christ. Um, one of the things of the burning bush, you know, where, you know, Jesus, I am the light. You have this burning bush and of course he's the I am. And you have, of course, the Passover lamb. Jesus is that type. You have the Red Sea as it parts and, you know, the going through the sea 
you have the tabernacle, you have the smitten rock, you have the manna. All of these things that we're going to be looking at here in the book of Exodus are actually types of the person and the ministry of Jesus Christ as he fulfills. So, um, and then when we get to the tabernacle, what we're going to see is this, that the tabernacle is going to, in so many varied ways, which with every metal that's used and how the metal has types, like the metal of silver is redemption, the metal of copper or bronze is for, for judgment, the metal of gold reminds you of heaven, and so you have all the different metals, you have all the different measurements, you have the, the way the tabernacle is set up, that all this, as they deal with the tabernacle, is going to point to the first coming of the first ministry of Jesus Christ. Once you get from the tabernacle to the temple, and of course we won't get that for a while yet, um, but when we do get into the temple, we'll see how all of that portrays the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so each one of these things with the, the furnishings that are in there, the dimensions that are used, the, the length, the width, the height, all of these things are pointers to Christ. And so we're going to see a lot of just these pictures and shadows that are pointed to our perfect Redeemer and the perfect redemption. And so as we go through this book, um, we're going to see that it basically sets up the foundation for redemption, for the Redeemer, um, as we look to what God does through the nation of Israel. So, again, Exodus 1, looking at verse 1 again. Now, these are the names. These are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man and his household came with Jacob. It's interesting that the Spirit does not, at this point, give Jacob his new name. We've talked about it before, how when you see Jacob receiving his new name to Israel. Jacob, of course, meaning supplanter, heel catcher, conniver, deceiver, to Israel, which means governed by God. That when Jacob received his new name throughout the book of Genesis, sometimes God, through the Spirit, would call Jacob Jacob. Sometimes he'd call Israel Israel. And it was unique that we could see that whenever he called him Jacob, you could see him kind of in the flesh. Whenever we heard him Israel, you could see him walking in the spirit. He was being governed by God. It's unique that here, as we see the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt, each man and his household came with Jacob. He doesn't call them Israel. They came with Jacob. And of course, then we see the names of the son, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, the first four through Leah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, all those who, descend, who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And so we see here the 12 sons of Jacob, and as we understand, they're now coming here to Egypt, and then it recognizes here out of all the descendants with the 12 sons and Jacob that with their sons, their wives, and their children, there were 70 in all that came to the land. And of course, where it says that Joseph was in Egypt already. Joseph, of course, it's a very nice way of saying he was in Egypt already. We understand how he got to Egypt. Um, he just didn't like, hey, let me journey to Egypt. His brother said, we hate you. We hate your dreams. And what we want to do is we want to kill you. So they threw him in a pit and they decided, let's not kill him. We'd make more money if we sold him. And so why just kill off the kid? Let's sell him as a slave. And so he is sold as a slave. He then is brought down to Egypt. He's sold to a man named Potiphar. He honors God in Potiphar's house. And of course, then through honoring God, Potiphar's wife makes a move on him. He refuses her. She then <coughs> tries to throw 
Joseph under the bus saying that he came after me. And so Potiphar sends him to prison. While he's in prison, he, you know, is met by two men that are there as he's ministering to them. The, the butler and the baker, he interprets the dreams and he says, okay, you the cupbearer, you're going to go back and, and give the, the, the cup. And when you do, please remember me. And he says to the baker, yeah, um, sorry, you're going to lose your head. But that's your dream. Eventually, the Pharaoh has these dreams looking for someone to interpret the dreams. And the cupbearer says, oh, I remember my wrongs. I remember what I've done. There's a man that's there of the, um, who can interpret dreams. And then, of course, Joseph is taken from the pit of the prison and brought into the pinnacle of the palace. And then he literally becomes the second in command. You have Pharaoh and you have Joseph and there's no one in between. And so when it says here that Joseph was in Egypt already, that's a really, really nice way of saying it. And, um, but he was there. He was the, the his name, Jaspaneath, was the savior of the world. And so as he's here now, all these children are now in Egypt as a total of 70. And it makes this statement in verse 6, And Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, and multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. So at this point, they take the direction of God, be fruitful and multiply. They are fruitful and they multiply. And so in the same thing that was given in the book of Genesis, they're actually walking it out. They multiplied and grew and exceeded mightily. And the land there that they were placed in is now filled with them. Now in verse 8, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Why is this important? Well, a couple of things that I want to give to you. One passage is found in the book of Genesis chapter 15. If you remember when we went through Genesis 15, it's where God begins to make this covenant with Abraham. And as God makes a covenant, what he does is this. He tells Abraham, I am your um, shield and your exceedingly great reward. And I'm going to here bless you. What I want to do is I want to do a covenant with you. So he tells Abraham that what I want you to do is bring this three-year-old heifer, this three-year-old female goat, the three-year-old ram, the turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And I want you to divide them in the half and separate these. And then what would normally happen is that that would be in this age a contract. In other words, that you would walk through on one side, the other guy making the contract would walk through on the other side, you would meet in the middle, and what it would be saying is this, if I don't uphold my end of the contract, then may I die, like, like these animals that are here. And so it was a sign of a contract. Now what was happening was this, that Abraham began to chase away the vultures and the vultures were smelling the blood. They were smelling the carrion. They wanted to come down and Abraham was chasing them away, chasing, waiting for God. And eventually Abraham gets to the point where he's exhausted and he falls asleep. When he falls asleep, it makes this statement. And I want to start reading in verse nine. I want to read down to verse 18. But it makes this statement, so he, that is God, said to him, Abram, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And then he brought all these to him, and he cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Abraham receives this vision of what's going to happen to his descendants. And so this is what happens in verse 13. Then he, this is God, said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. 
and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Now, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came to pass when the sun went down, when it was dark, that behold, there appeared smoking, a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. So we see that as God and Abram are going to make this covenant, Abraham sleeps. He has a vision of what's going to happen to his descendants is they're going to wind up in a land that is not theirs, not the promised land. As they wind up strangers to this land, they're going to be afflicted, and the affliction is going to last around 400 years. But they're going to cry out to the Lord. God is going to redeem them, and they're going to be brought back into this land that God had promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And so we see in verse 8, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now Joseph, of course, was second in command hundreds of years ago. So you're looking at this being right around 400 years. Now as you're looking at 400 years, a lot of things can be slipped. You don't remember a lot of things that happened 400 years ago. Even as a nation, we don't always remember things that happened um, at the beginning of our nation. I mean, you, you think about it and, you know, how many people, don't, no, don't raise your hands, but how many of you people have heard of George Washington, but how many people have heard of George Washington's vice president? How many people have heard of Abraham Lincoln? Now, we're not going 200 some years. We're only going about 100. How many people have heard of Abraham's, um, Abraham Lincoln's two vice presidents? So those are the things where the second command, who really knows? I mean, you know, you, you, we rarely remember the vice president of the presidents that are there. We, you know, we, we sometimes remember, oh, this person was running for president. I remember him because he was going to be number one. Or, but who remembers their running mates? Nobody remembers the second in command. Well, that's what happens. You know, Joseph was number two. He may have been the one who did everything, but eventually the Pharaoh's names would be recognized. Joseph would be now off to the side. And after, you know, um, 400 years, that famine was just a blip in the history. They don't really recognize Joseph for what he did. And the promise that was made, all they see is an abundance of people multiplying in their own land. And so what happens is this. There arose a new king over Egypt, verse 8, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. So in other words, their population is growing Ours isn't growing as much, and there's more of them than there is of us. And so as he does this, he now has this great idea of what to do with this mass of people who's there. And this is his great idea. Now, I don't know if he's read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, but you see in verse 10 that his choice is a little different. He says, come let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happened in the event of war that they also <coughs> join our enemies and fight against us and so go up out of the land. Now what he has done is he's made a couple of statements that he's concerned about. One, of course, is their numbers. They're, they have more people and they are in greater numerical strength than what we are. So let us deal shrewdly with them. Now, what does it mean to deal shrewdly? Just jump down to verse 12 for just a second so you can kind of grasp what happens. It says this, 
but the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. So shrewdly is not let's you know talk to them and educate them. It's like, no, let's figure out how we can impress them more and more. Because they were concerned that if there was ever a war with the Canaanites and the nation of Israel would join the Canaanites in that war so that they could say, we want to go against you. We want to free ourselves from you. We want to leave you. They did not want that to happen. So again in verse 10, come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply and it happened in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us and so go up out of the land. They're concerned that they're going to now leave the land and that they would no longer have these people as a workforce to assist them. Verse 11, how do they deal shrewdly? Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. So we see here that the, the main thing with this king of Egypt is he doesn't want the Israel nation to grow in numbers. And the interesting thing is, although he didn't want them to grow, as we see here at the end of verse 12, but the more he afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. Apparently, his plan didn't work out. Now, think about that if, if you want to, as a leader, afflict a people, you can sometimes do damage within that people group but understand, you can never do damage to the plan of God. So let me try to set this in, 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 in a way that you can kind of grasp this. There's a world leader trying to afflict and change the plan of God, which is to grow Abraham's descendants to be as much as the, the stars in the skies, as much as the sand on the seashores. So God's plan was, I'm going to grow this people. He wanted to stop the plan of God. Now, you can interject yourself to certain people, but you can never interject yourself into the plan and stop the plan. You can stop certain people, you can limit certain people, but you can never limit the plan of God. So initially, he wants to stop them from growing, and of course, he fails miserably. Well, as we continue through the book of Exodus, we're going to see that his next great idea is, let's stop them from leaving which is God's next plan. Um, he needs to get better advisors because he fails miserably in the next one as well. So he doesn't want them to follow God in the plan that God has for them. But initially, he wants to set up taskmasters over them to afflict them with burdens. And they built for Pharaoh these supply cities. Now verse 12 again, the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. So keep in mind that what is happening is that through this affliction, they're actually growing. I don't know if you are familiar with different nations that have a persecution of Christians, but I can tell you that when you have an anchoring of Christians in the nation that persecutes them, that church, rather than being wiped out, that church begins to grow. That through this furnace of affliction, that the faith that is in those Christians can't be wishy-washy. You're either all in or you're not in. There's no, oh yeah, I kind of believe, but you go do your thing and I won't. No, you're either all in or you're not in. And as we note this, what's happening here. The, the, the more they are afflicted, the more, in a sense, that, that God's work is working in them. They are, in a sense, having their um, being purified in their faith through this furnace of affliction that is going to be happening. A passage I want to give to you found in 
2 Corinthians chapter 12. I just want to read two verses to you. You know them already. I just want to read them to you. I want to read to you verses 8 and 9. Paul here is dealing with an affliction. And so he said there was a thorn in the flesh given to him. And he, he makes this statement about this buffeting. He said, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly will I, I will rather boast in my affirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He talks about his strength being made perfect in weakness. Why is that? Well, when you're in a place of weakness, you say what? God, I need you. And God says, you need me, fine, here I am. When you're not in a place of weakness, we don't say, God, I need you. There's just no need. I'm doing fine. And God says, fine, if you think you're doing fine and you don't need me, let me back away just a little bit so that you realize you need me. And this is what God will often do through areas of affliction. That when we get very comfortable with who we are and what we're doing, we think, I don't really need God powerfully in my life. What happens is this. We don't realize and we're not really looking at just how often God is injecting himself into our lives, into the moments of our lives and the details of our lives to actually cause us to be at peace. Now, when he removes his presence, he backs away. All of a sudden, all these things that God was orchestrating, now no one is orchestrating. And you realize, oh my goodness, my life is spinning out of control. What can I do? And of course, we see here that God in his grace, as they go through this, they have this affliction. But in their weakness, God says, listen, when you guys can't do anything, you're going to see my strength. And my strength is going to be made perfect through your weaknesses. And so we see here, verse 12 again, the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, which of course is the failure of verse 10, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. Now it's interesting that here, they are the ones who are afraid of Israel. And because they're afraid of Israel, they want to afflict them. They want to attack them. They want to put burdens on them. It's because of their own fears. Understand that usually when persecutions come from the world, the reason the world is persecuting is because there's a fear of the light that is in you. They do not want the light. They want darkness. And so here we see that as they are afflicting them, they're afflicting them because they're in dread. They are afraid of Israel. Two passages I want you to just be aware of when it comes to affliction. The first is found in Psalm 119, verse 75. And that simply opens up, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are right. And then he makes this statement after he says, what you choose is right. He says, and that in faithfulness, you have afflicted me. I know your judgments are right, but I also know that in faithfulness, you have afflicted me. What does that look like? In the book of 1 Peter, chapter 4, Verse 19, Peter makes a statement and he declares this in 1 Peter 4, 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. So we make note of this. Those who are suffering according to the will of God, you commit your souls to him in doing good. As you would to what? A faithful creator. So as you're going through these areas, we begin to see here that God makes this point that I'm in my faithfulness, I'm going to allow you to be afflicted. Now, he does 
tell Abram, your descendants are going to be afflicted. They're going to be going through these things. I'm telling you this now, but understand that through this affliction that they go through, they are going to be redeemed. The affliction is not the end of the story. The affliction is just a chapter in the story. But when they come out, they're going to come out to worship me. They're going to come inherit the land that I promised them. And they're going to come out with great riches. And so this is what's going to be happening. Now, of course, the reason they do it at the end of verse 12 again, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. That term rigor would be more of a term of um, they were very harsh in how they treated the nation Israel, how they treated them in their service to them. And verse 14, they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field, and all their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. So we see that now they are being oppressed by the nation Israel or by the nation Egypt. And at this point, he wants to stop them from growing and multiplying. But the more that they afflicted them, verse 12, the more they grew and multiplied. It wasn't working. So what does he do? Let's try something else. Verse 15. The king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives of whom the name of one was Sifra and the name of the other Puah. And he said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. So now the Pharaoh tries to bring in helpers to his plan, not just afflicting them because they're still growing. So he goes to the Hebrew midwives. Now, whether these two are the leaders of the, the Hebrew midwives or whether they are two that were just distinctly set apart to them, it's unknown. But I want you to understand something that's important. The first thing is that Pharaoh goes to them, the king of Egypt comes and he speaks to these midwives and he lets them know when you do the duties of it, if it's a son, you kill him. If it's a daughter, you don't. Why the difference? Well, keep in mind that one of the things they were concerned about is, listen, if they join our enemies to fight against us, in these days, you wouldn't see the women pick up swords. You wouldn't see the women pick up spears. You wouldn't see the women pick up bows and arrows. The women weren't the fighters. The men were. And so what he wants to do is I want to destroy anyone who might pick up a sword, anyone who might pick up a spear, anyone who might pick up a bone arrow. So he's choosing the ones that would be warriors that would join another army. I want to not have men join, but let there be a lot of women. I'm okay with that. So here we see that when they're doing the duties of the midwife, it's if a son, kill him. If it's a daughter, she shall live. Something else that's of importance, when you look at verse 15, and this is a major distinction that so often we just read over and we don't really focus on what's going on. It says in verse 15, the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Sifra. Her name means brightness. The literal term of her name means brightness. And then the other name of the other was Pua. And her name means glitter or brilliancy, where she just sort of glide, you know, glitters and shines. What I find is interesting is this, that in the annals of history for throughout time that God chooses these two midwives names to be known throughout generation after generation after generation. 
and you think of where midwives would be in the scale of society. Now, if you've had a midwife, they're elevated. If you've never had a midwife, it's like, well, I don't know where a midwife would be in society. But I want you to now say, wherever you think a midwife would be, where do you think the king of Egypt would be? And it's interesting that what we see is this. The king of Egypt is not named. He's just, there's a king of Egypt. Just blase, blase, here he is. But these two women that are there, Sifra and Pua, these two are named. It's a way of God saying, listen, remember when he talked about Lazarus and the rich man? And how we noted how Lazarus is not a parable because he never gives the name of someone in a parable. It's an actual event that Jesus is speaking of. But he doesn't say Lazarus and whatever you want to call the rich guy. He doesn't give him a name. And Jesus earlier in the Gospels would say, depart from me, I never knew you. Those who do the will of the Father, yep, you I know, come on in, you who do the will. But if you don't do the will of the Father, he says, depart from me, I never knew you. It's interesting, I believe that we will see Sifra and Pua in heaven. Mm -hmm. I don't believe we're going to see the king of Egypt. Mm -hmm. And so it's unique that here the Holy Spirit only gives who the world would see as the king. Oh, he's just the king. But the two midwives, he elevates them by giving them the names. Now, we do see what the king of Egypt directed them to do. When you see the women on the birth stools, if it's a son, kill him. If it's a daughter, she shall live. Verse 17 says this, but the midwives feared God. What an incredible statement to how God sees these midwives. The midwives feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So they didn't listen to the king of Egypt, but they did listen to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. They knew his will, and they walked his will, but they didn't follow the will of their king. And so as these midwives fear God, did not do as the king of Egypt commanded, but saved the male children alive. You have to understand that there is going to be a point where, in fact, let's just read the next couple of verses so you can grasp it. But while you, while I read it, keep in mind the very end of verse 17. They saved the male children alive. In other words, they did not kill them. Verse 18, the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and they give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore, God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very mightily. So as we see here, some people say, well, the midwives lied. They lied by saying, listen, these Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They say that they are lively and they give birth before the midwives come to them. Now, either it's a true statement or it's not a true statement. It can't, you know, it might have some, some of them may have gotten, you know, where before they came, the, the one was already born. And there may have been a difference in how um, strong the Hebrew women were versus how strong the Egyptian women were, where they may have had a harder time with birth, where the, the Hebrew women did not. But they say the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, verse 19, for they are lively and they give birth before the midwives come to them. Well, at this point, what they were supposed to do is when the baby was being born, if they saw it was a male, then you kill that male child. You do not allow it to live. But if the child's already born, well, you can't do it there. The child's already alive. So they're saying this is what was happening and of course, therefore, God dealt well with the midwives. He blesses them. The question is, does he bless them 
Because they lied, does he bless them in spite of their lies, or does he simply bless them because, as we see here in verse 17, but the midwives feared God. I don't know if it has to do with what they did or did not do. I believe the blessing is because they feared God, and they did as much as they felt they could with what they did. If you remember when Samuel was called to go and anoint one of the sons of Jesse, one of his statements was, I don't think I should go there. If Saul finds out, he's not going to be happy. So God says, well, tell him you're doing a sacrifice. If he asks, tell him you're doing a sacrifice. So bring some offerings there, do a sacrifice. But while you're there, you're going to hold a feast and you're going to anoint one of the sons of Jesse. And so he does do this. And so we do see that God sometimes will say, if you're not ready to do fully what I've asked you to do, I'll knock it down a peg or two. Um, I'm content with what you're willing to do. If you remember there at the end of the Gospel of John, Peter was asked three times, Peter, do you love me? Now, we understand he denied him three times. We went through that as we went through the book of Matthew. Then, when Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. Now, we've talked about this before, how in the English it doesn't really pan out well. Because at the third time when Jesus says, do you love me? Peter began to weep because the Lord said, do you love me? So the English doesn't work out. However, if you look at it in the Greek, it's different. Let me take you to what the Greek would say. Jesus says initially, Peter, do you agape me? Are you completely given over to me? Peter responds, Lord, you know all things. You know I phileo you. I love you like a brother. So at that point, he says, okay, well, if that is where you are, then, then simply you know, feed my lambs. And then Jesus would ask him a second time. He says, Peter, do you agape me? Peter says, Lord, you know I phileo you. And so Jesus said, okay, well then, you know, serve my sheep. And the third time what Jesus does is this. He goes to Peter and says, Peter, do you phileo me? He dropped down to what Peter's level was. And when he dropped down to the level, he says, you know, do you phileo me? And then now it makes sense. Peter began to weep because the Lord had for the third time says, Peter, do you phileo me? He says, Lord, you know all things. You know I phileo you. And so he says, okay, feed my sheep. And this is what happens that God will sometimes allow you to do what you're capable of doing. He'll stretch you into it, but he'll only have you do what you're capable of doing. And if these midwives were only capable of doing so much, we see here that God still, because of these midwives, feared God, God was going to bless them and deal well with them. <coughs> and the people grew, the people multiplied and grew very mightily. Verse 21. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. This is an interesting statement. And I've had to kind of go to commentators to say, is there a reason for this? Is there a point? We do understand that when it says he provided households that he gave them families. The closest thing that I had an understanding was that the, the women that didn't have children, they became midwives. And they would help out all the other women that would have children. Yet we see that here, through the, the blessing, God gave them families. That's a possibility. The other thing is this, is that they, through what God did, he gave them families and families and families and families and families. All these people that had been, they had blessed these families just welcomed them in. And so multiple families. And so we do understand that he gave them families is the literal term. How that pans out, there's not a lot of detail in the text to confirm it. Um, so whether he gave them husbands and children, it's a possibility. Um, whether he, they were like welcomed into these other families, another possibility. Um, 
My thought is that they had children of their own, <clears throat> husbands of their own. And so once the plan of Pharaoh through the midwives no longer works out, <coughs> we do see that he comes up with another plan. As in verse 20, the people multiplied and grew very mightily. We see in verse 22, so Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, every son who is born, you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. I want you to just recognize one thing as we close here, that we don't have to be afraid of the things that cause death. We just don't. And I think this is what's so important for us as believers. There's a point where, and we've, we've kind of made reference to this um, as we were closing up Matthew, and because of what happened last year, is people are so concerned about death and death and death and what they will do to, you know, not even come close to having to think about death and what happened to a nation when something came, you know, on the scene that would be something that could cause uh, a slight percentage of, of people to die. And we see here that we don't have to fear death as Christians because the real us isn't the physical, the real us is the spiritual. And what happens is when the physical passes, the spiritual just goes in as with God. And so the Pharaoh makes a statement, every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. So he now begins to say, well, I can't just simply trust the midwives to do this. So as the nation of Egypt comes... If they see a male child, they're going to throw the male child into the river. If they see a female child, well, that child then can be alive. So um, to the degree that they were either checking the children or when they just saw a children, you know, a child, that they would do it. But we see here that we're going to note that there was a man of the tribe of Levi him and his wife will have this beautiful little boy and they're going to hide him for three months. And then uniquely, what she's going to do is she's going to cast her son into the river. So she's going to be obedient in a sense to the command. But I wanted to just kind of bring this first section to show you that what the, the, the king is trying to do is he can deal with and sometimes interrupt people we can never deal with or interrupt God's plan there's a plan that God has and that plan is going to be accomplished and he has no say in the plan of God and so just because you know there's something that someone says this could cause death and this can cause death I, I like the fact that what we're going to see Moses's parents do is they're actually say well you said cast him in the river it was going to cause death and God says, well, when this one is cast into the river, it's not only going to cause life for him, but it's going to cause life and redemption for an entire nation. So in his edict, that which he said should cause death actually causes redemption for God's people and for God's plan. And I think that's something that we have to sometimes take into account because when it's something the world says, this is our edict, this is causing death to Christians, and this is causing death to Christians, God's going to take that around and that thing that they want to cause death is going to actually, God's going to use what the enemy means for evil, turn around and use it for good, and to bring it to bring life and redemption to his people. And, and I think that's a great way to end here in chapter 1. Um, next week we'll begin in chapter 2. So let's bow our hearts. Father, we are just truly grateful for who you are, how you are, how you work out your promises. And Lord, when it comes to this area, we see this Pharaoh who is so trying to thwart, Lord, your plan. And your plan remains on time and in full effect. There's a work that you're doing. But that work that you're doing is you want to reveal redemption. 
And Lord, we are so thankful that that is what you've done for us. All the work that you've done in us is to reveal redemption. Your love for us, the fact that we need to be redeemed, the fact that you will send the Redeemer Jesus, the fact that he's done the work, and we can now enter into his work and through the shedding of his blood, we know that we have changed radically, that we are not in a house in which death will come, that we are in a house that death will pass over. It's all because our Passover lamb was slain. It's all because you have done the work. So we ask that you would knit us, Lord, to the redemption process. You would illuminate us as we read through this book, the redemption process. May we understand this foundation that no one, nothing will be able to sway us from the truths that are anchored in this word, the truths that are anchored in this book as we continue, Lord, just this beautiful, beautiful picture, this beautiful shadow of which will be you, Jesus. Oh, knit our hearts to you, we ask in Jesus' name and all the saints of God said. Amen. Amen.